And now as we prepare to hear God's word read and proclaimed, let us pray. Holy and gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Today, our scripture lesson comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Listen now for a new word from God to you today. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now standing there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to them, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. He said to them, now draw some out and take it to the chief steward. So they took it. When the steward tasted the water that had become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the steward called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk. But you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs, in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory. And his disciples believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The exclamation Eureka is from a Greek word that means I found it. It is attributed to the Greek scholar Archimedes, who was sinking into a bathtub. When he saw the level of the water rise, he suddenly realized that the volume of water displaced must be equal to the volume of what was submerged in it. As the story goes, he leapt out of the bath and ran naked into the streets, shouting, Eureka! Eureka! We are in the season of Epiphany, which began two weeks ago with the story of the Magi who were traveling from faraway lands to visit the newborn King Jesus, guided by a star, and continued last week with the story of Jesus' baptism and God's delight in Jesus and in each one of us. This is a time for us to unwrap the gifts of Christmas and think about what it looks like for them to become real and meaningful in our everyday lives. It is a eureka season, a time of discovery, of revelation, of seeking and finding in daily life the presence and wonder and glory of God a time when we are invited to recognize the extraordinary in the everyday. For Jesus' 
followers, the water to wine event at the wedding in Cana was just such a eureka moment. The story begins with a commonplace event that is nonetheless extraordinary, a wedding. As anyone who's ever gotten married knows, and especially those of you who have gotten married or hosted a wedding in the last couple of decades, weddings are an ever-growing business. As soon as the engagement happens, there is an extraordinary to-do list most couples feel compelled to attend to, from invitations to flowers to choosing a reception venue to purchasing presents with which to propose to your bridesmaids and groomsmen. Did you know that was a thing? I didn't. Not to mention the caterer and the cake, the dress and the invitations, the programs, and the place cards. Oh yes, and you might want to make sure the minister is available for the big day. But weddings weren't always such extravagant affairs. In an article titled, I the Dread, writer Gia Tolentino reminds us that for centuries, weddings were entirely homemade productions, brief and simple ceremonies conducted in private, The vast majority of people in history have gotten married in front of a handful of people with no reception in clothes that they had worn before and would wear again. Tolentino goes on to reveal that the white wedding dress wasn't always a thing and neither were wedding rings for men. In ancient Greece, brides wore violet or red. In Renaissance Europe, blue. And in 19th century France and England, black silk. The white wedding dress only became popular after Queen Victoria wore one when she married Prince Albert in 1840. Most men didn't get a ring at their weddings until World War II, when the male wedding band was popularized as a reminder of wife, country, and home when the new husband went off to fight in the war. It turns out that many of the wedding traditions we think of as timeless are actually pretty new. Nevertheless, simple or extravagant, weddings have always represented something significant. And if nothing else, they've always been a good excuse for a party. In Jesus' time, the whole village would be invited to a wedding celebration, and the party would often last as long as a week. Can you imagine planning for that? And yet, today's story reminds us that one thing we know about weddings hasn't changed. With all those details and all the expectations riding on them, something is bound to go wrong. When I'm meeting with couples who are preparing to get married, I always say to them, it's not whether something will go wrong on the big day, it's what will go wrong. And whatever it is, we'll deal with it, and it will be something unique about your wedding that you will always remember. The description of the crisis at the wedding of Cana suggests this has always been true. There was a wedding the text tells us, and Jesus and his disciples and his mother were all there. When the wine ran out. 
Notice the text doesn't say this as if it were any great surprise. It doesn't say with such high drama, but then the wine ran out, or shockingly, the wine ran out. It simply states what happened, as if things not going according to plan isn't so unusual. Indeed, in this story, it's not the wine running out that is the extraordinary thing. It's what happens next. First, it's Jesus' mother who brings the crisis to his attention. Now, even though the text acts as if running out of wine was no big deal, for a wedding party to run out of wine was, in fact, a very big deal in a culture where hospitality was paramount. This wasn't an eventuality the hosts of this wedding could easily overcome. It would be a source of deep shame and humiliation. Maybe Jesus' mother was sensitive to this, and to the fact that her son had brought 12 guests, his disciples, to this wedding who may have consumed more than their fair share of the wine. By calling this to his attention, she gives him an opportunity, not just to reveal what he is capable of, but to show compassion to those in need, in this case, to the hosts of the party. What happens next is that for the first time in John's gospel, Jesus performs what John calls a sign. In the other gospels, this would be called a miracle. But in John, Jesus performs signs, actions that point to a larger meaning about who Jesus is and who God is. These signs are important not so much for what they are, but for what they accomplish. They lead people to see Jesus for who he really is. They bring about an epiphany, a eureka moment for the people around Jesus. Here, Jesus solves the problem of running out of wine at a wedding by filling up six 30-gallon jars with water. That would be the equivalent of about a thousand bottles of wine. This water then becomes not just wine, but the finest wine, the stuff most people would only serve for a short period of time at the beginning of a party while the guests can still fully appreciate it. So the hosts of this wedding aren't just saved from a social faux pas. They end up looking better than before because of the quality of this wine. And the guests, all of the guests, find themselves at a very different party than the one they were at before. This sign isn't meant to teach us that Jesus will solve all of our problems, or that he exists to make us happy, or even that Jesus just doesn't want to get in trouble with his mother. Rather, this sign offers those who witness it a glimpse of God's glory, which the coming Messiah was prophesied to reveal through God's abundant provision for God's people. In the Bible, throughout the Bible, a feast with fine food and wine is a metaphor for God's joyful and abundant provision. In Psalm 36, the psalmist proclaims to God that people feast on the abundance of your house 
and you give them drink from the river of your delights. Isaiah, in prophesying the coming Messiah, writes, The Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. This moment at the wedding, in which ordinary water, the element most necessary for life, becomes wine, a symbol of joy and celebration, And when it becomes not just a reasonable, measured, appropriate amount of wine, but more wine than any wedding requires, this moment is a revelation of God's desire for each one of us. And God's desire is that all of God's children would know joy, that we would all know abundance that we would all experience delight, even amidst the inevitable challenges and difficulties of life. With this sign, the disciples witness the abundant joy of the divine in the person and actions of Jesus, and they believed in him. At the beginning of John's gospel, which we heard just a few weeks ago, We hear that the word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen his glory full of grace and truth. That last line is sometimes translated as grace upon grace. The eureka of this story, when Jesus turns water into abundant quantities of the finest wines, just at the moment when everything appeared lost, reveals to us what God's glory, what Jesus' grace upon grace looks like in the midst of our ordinary lives. It is, in a way, a microcosm of the whole gospel story, a foretaste of the crucifixion and the resurrection, grace upon grace. Derek and I got married in the year 2000 in Roanoke, Virginia. The wedding ceremony was at Second Presbyterian Church. Now, keep in mind, we were two seminarians steeped in all the minutiae of theology and worship. And because of that, we made a deal with my mother. She could make all the decisions about the reception as long as we could make all the decisions about the church service. And if my mother had not thrown such a spectacular party after the wedding service, we would have needed to write an apology note to all of our guests because our wedding ceremony left nothing out and lasted way longer than any wedding should. We even served communion, and that's not really a thing Presbyterians do at weddings. But once the guests got to the reception, which was in the mountains outside of town where there was a tent and live music and plenty of good food and wine, picking the wine was my dad's big job and he did it very well, everyone relaxed and enjoyed themselves and forgave us for the extra scripture readings and the long-winded prayers. A spectacular full moon rose up over the mountains, and after dinner there was more wine and dancing. It was almost magical. The only thing that kept it from being truly magical was our seminary friends. 
who kind of acted like they'd never been to a wedding reception before. Near the end of the evening, I spotted one of them pulling a whole bottle of wine out of one of those big galvanized tubs and then drinking straight from the bottle. As he walked away, one of my parents' friends said in astonishment, what are they teaching them at that seminary? It was a fair question. And although I was glad our friends were having a great time, I also wanted to die of embarrassment. But if I could go back now, I might say to the person who asked that question, they are teaching us that God's love is a thing of joy and delight and abundance, that God's kingdom is like a wedding celebration to which everyone is invited and where there is more than enough food and music and dancing and wonder and the finest of wines for everyone. I might have said, Eureka, I found it. This is what God's glory looks like. Amen.